Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish theologian, by the way, which is probably one of the coolest names on planet Earth, Sinclair Ferguson, right? He says, in the, in the last analysis, it's more important to serve, it's important that the servants of God are devoted to Christ than they are to one of us. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Not just make a profession of faith, not simply to make an emotional move forward during an altar call. Not simply to take and, and apply the, the Christian label and put it on your life like a bumper sticker. What does it mean to actually follow him, to be his disciple? Because make no mistake, that is exactly what he calls all believers to, to actively follow him. Jesus said to his first apostles, Follow me. Not just agree with me. Not just learn some facts about who I am and what I'm doing. Not just support me. He said, leave everything behind and follow me. And they did. They became his disciples. That's what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. And they did. They followed him. And before Christ left the earth, he said to them in, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. Please note what he says. He said to make disciples. He didn't say make converts. That's the first step in the process. That's not the goal itself. He said, make disciples. He didn't say, go make allies and people who are sympathetic to our cause. He didn't say, go make people who claim my name, but they won't do what I say to do. He didn't say, go make a group of people who will focus on me and give me their attention one day a week, but spend the rest of their life focused on other things. And he didn't say, to go make avid fans of mine who cheer me on. He said, go make disciples, followers, people who go where he goes, people who will go where he says to go, people who will follow his example and his word. That's what the Great Commission is. That's what he gave to them. And that's what he gave to us, the church. We 
likewise are to go and make other Christ's followers. In fact, that is the, the mission statement of First Baptist Church. I've said it many times, but hopefully maybe some of you might remember it. But the mission statement of First Baptist Church here in Boron, California, is that we are here to create spiritually maturing Christ followers. That's the mission. Which means we need then to know what it means to follow Christ. So what does it mean? And that's the question we've been seeking to answer in the series that we are in. A series that we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for over a year now, learning little by little who Christ is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. And according to the Gospel of Mark, we're beginning to see just that. Now, what we need to realize is when we ask other people that question, including people who profess to be Christians, we'll hear answers like, well, following Christ means to go to church and, and, and to pray and to read the Bible and to give and, and to fellowship and, and to worship. And, and I would say that those who follow Christ certainly do those things. And they should do those things and, and should continue to do those things. But as we saw last, because as we saw last week, what we realized is we need the church. We need each other. And we certainly need to pray, and we certainly need to be in the Word of God, and we certainly need to be connected to one another, and we certainly need to be generous, and we certainly need to live a life of worship. But what we need to understand is that's not what it means to follow Christ. Those are not the things that make up following Christ. Those are the outworkings or the natural byproduct of following Christ. Those are the byproducts of following Jesus, not the act of following Christ itself. Some people will say that following Christ means to seek to be a good person. Jesus set us free from our sins, and now he wants us to change our ways and live a better life and to strive to, to sin less and to be better people. And while it is true that we have been set free from the penalty of sin, and the Holy Spirit is progressively, little by little, setting us free from the power of sin, and God absolutely, certainly calls us to pursue holiness in our own lives, and he, he calls us to be obedient to his word, that too is a natural outworking of following Christ. It's not the result of following Christ. I mean, excuse me, it's the result of following Christ. It's not the cause of us following Christ. Other people will say that following Christ is, is to know what, what Jesus would do and then do that. That was the whole WWJD movement. What would Jesus do? It's this idea that in any situation you find yourself in life, you ask yourself, what would, what would Jesus do? And then you do that. And, and as well-meaning as that may be, that is still not the actual answer. Because doing what Jesus would do, or what he would have us to do, is still the byproduct of actually following Jesus. It's the natural outworking of following Jesus. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what it is that Jesus would do in any given situation. And then some people would even get very biblical and say, well, hey, you know what? Following Jesus means you need to love God and to love other people because Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. And again, this sounds really, really good and spiritual, but we need to remember that loving God and loving others is actually the law. That's what Jesus said. You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving God the way that he is called to be loved, and loving other people the way that they deserve to be loved, is what it means to keep the law. If you could do those things, there wouldn't even be a law. 
And the thing is, what we understand and what we know is we're not keeping the law on our own. Right? We can't do it. It's impossible for ourselves. In fact, that's the reason why Christ himself came, because we can't keep the law. We're unable to love God the way that he calls us to love. I mean, think about it. You, cannot, you do not still now love God perfectly the way that he ought to be loved. And we're not able to love others the way that God calls us to love on our own. So following Christ must be something more than us trying to keep this list of rules then. And it is. But the problem is, we often, when we think about following Christ, the problem is we begin with us. We think about following Christ, we think that means it begins, it starts with us. We need to do something. We need to go to church. We, 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 need, to do, we need to be better to people. We need to ask what Jesus do and do that. We, we need to love God and love other people and keep the law. I need to try harder. I need to work more. I need to learn more. There's something in us that always wants to think in terms of us and what we need to do. But understand, following Christ is not about what we can do. It's about what God is doing in us. Let me say that again. Following Christ isn't about what we can do. It's about what God is doing in us. And this is the truth that we must keep in our hearts and minds and keep focused on. Following Christ begins and ends with God himself. It's about what he is doing in our lives. It's about the work that he's doing in our hearts. It's about then us responding to that in faith. That's our part. To respond in faith. And that's what we see throughout the, this gospel. We see Christ working in these men's lives, opening their eyes little by little right, to the truth of the kingdom of God. And as their hearts begin to change, as they begin to grow in their understanding, they respond in faith. That's what we see. And what we see is this is not an instantaneous, overnight project. I mean, I don't know about you, but it would be, my life would be so much easier that when God saved me, he would have sanctified me all at once and, and changed me and completely opened my eyes to all things and done. It would be easier, but it, we see that it's not like that. We see even in the Word for these apostles, it was a slow and not always smooth process. Right? Because, because we tend to get in the way of what God is doing. That's what we see in Mark, anyway. We see the apostles, at times, not fully understanding the truth. They don't always see the truth that's right before their eyes. And what happens? They end up trying to walk in their own strength. Ever try to do that? They're trying to implement their own plan for their lives. They're trying to do what they think is right, only to fail and make a mess of things. They keep forgetting that following Jesus is not what they can do for him, it's about what Christ is doing in them. And then walking in that by responding in faith. In fact, let me put it this way. <clears throat> After a year now, I think we're ready for this. Following Christ is living out the radical transformation of our heart. That's what it means to follow Christ. It is living out it is responding to and living out the radical transformation that God himself has worked in us. You see, we can't even follow Christ without, being, without God changing our hearts first. Like we've talked about over and over and over again. is what we've seen in Mark over and over again. Right? We see this in the Gospel. There are only two kinds of people. Those who, who are in the kingdom and those who are not. 
There are those who believe and those who don't. There are those who follow Jesus and then people that don't follow him. And what's the difference between them? It's not their age. It's not their upbringing. It's not how good grandma treated them when they were kids. Right? It's not their intelligence. It's not their status in life. It's not about them being rich. It's not about being important. It's not about being poor. Right? It's not their educational level and their, you know, and, and how many books or scrolls they might have read or how many you know, books of the Torah that they might have memorized. It's not even about their family and who they're related to by blood. Even Jesus' own family didn't believe in him at the time. It's not where they were born. It's not you know, how religious they may be. It's not whether or not they were even good people or not. So what's the difference between those who believe and that don't believe? And the difference, as we have seen, as Jesus clearly demonstrated, is the condition of their heart. Those who don't believe have a hardened heart of stone that naturally repels and rejects the gospel, and those who believe have a heart that's been transformed and changed by God. And God is the one that prepares the soil of the hearts, and the seed of the gospel falls in as they hear the word of God, and then it takes root by itself, It begins to grow little by little, maturing by the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit in their lives, opening their eyes more and more, producing in them a life and a desire to live radically different than the rest of the world. Because life in the kingdom is just that, radically different than the rest of the world. Those who have been radically transformed by God, those who God is changing and growing, those who are following Christ, they will begin to live and act in a way that's different than all the rest of the world. And not just in little ways, and not just a little different, but radically different in stunning ways, which is what we've seen so far. Jesus said right, this radically different transformed life is marked by self-denial. Because he said what? If anyone's going to follow me, he must do what? Deny himself. Radical. He didn't mince his words either. Which means we must make Christ the priority. We must make Jesus and his ministry the focus of our life, even over our own personal desires. Following Jesus and denying ourselves is and going wherever he leads us, even in the darkest seasons and the darkest parts of life, is what it means to deny self. Brothers and sisters, that's radically different than the rest of the world. Can we agree on that? The rest of the world is not interested in that. He said following him also is about being selfless. He said that if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you need to be last and to be the servant of all. Everyone else needs to come first. So what Jesus is saying is you need to prioritize your life this way. Jesus first, everyone else second, and then you last. That's what he's saying. Jesus first, everyone else, everyone else second, and then you last. That is, that is radically different. That's a radical change in attitude. That's a radical change in in. In, in thinking, it's a radical change in your worldview. This is something that we naturally don't want to do. Jesus also said that following him is to be sacrificial. 
He said those who follow him need to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. What is a cross? It's an instrument of torture and death. So exactly what it meant to these men, it should mean the same thing to us. What, what does that mean for us then? We need to be willing to pay whatever price. Whatever price it is to follow where Jesus leads. We must be willing to give it all. Not some. Hear me. All. Every bit of it. Our time, our possessions, our money, our reputation, our health. Even, if our, even our lives if need be, if that's what it was called. There should be nothing in our lives that we will not lay down at the altar in service to Christ to follow him. Right? And believe me, I understand. That's radically different than the rest of the world because the rest of the world goes, no. Uh-uh. There's just some things we're just, I'm not sacrificing for. That's what we see in marriage, by the way. Right? Because people have disconnected the idea of marriage from the covenant that God has made with his people. Husbands leave their wives because why? I'm not happy anymore. Because happiness, my happiness is not a price I'm willing to pay to stay married. Which we don't see any room for that in the Bible, do we? Paul makes it really, really clear right, that the marriage is a representation of Christ and his church. As John Piper said, a man can, can, has the permission to leave his wife when Christ leaves his church. Then he can, he can leave his wife. Right? That's what we... What we see in the world around us is that there is no willing to sacrifice beyond the superficial. And so yes, this is radically different than the rest of the world, but, but the truth is, right, we're never going to be able to do this in our own strength. Right? Because as we saw, right, when the disciples, they failed to cast out the demon, following Christ and living this radically different life is about being dependent upon God. Because you're not going to do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. We are dependent on God for everything. We are dependent upon Him to change our hearts. We're dependent upon God to strengthen us. We're dependent upon God to open our eyes. We're dependent upon God to empower us and give us the ability itself to follow Christ. That's why we say following Christ isn't what we do for Him. It's what He's doing in us. Following Jesus is self-denying, it is selfless, sacrificial, and wholly dependent upon God. That's living a radically different life than the rest of the world. And, the, and it's only by God working in us that we're able to do that, or even move towards that. And that's what we've learned so far about following Christ. And in today's text, we're going to see Jesus continue to press the issue And he will challenge the disciples in their understanding of what it means to to follow him. And he's going to challenge their understanding of their part in this mission, and he's going to reveal to them that following him and, and discipleship itself is really about service to God and other people. It's about serving God and others. Discipleship is about learning to serve. And it's Doing so in true humility. In, in, in this text, we're going to see that Jesus continues to address the issue of who is great in the kingdom. And we're going to see that, that all those who serve others and who are willing to humble themselves are the ones that are great in the kingdom. And they do so in humility. Even to the point 
of being nameless and faceless in the crowd. And we're going to see that following Christ and going where he goes and willingly serving in humility is also rewarding. That's the part that we forget. That even the smallest act of service will be rewarded by God. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. And before we jump in, let me just kind of remind you really quickly where we are, because this is really actually important. The disciples, if you remember, they had failed to cast out a demon. Okay, This is going to be very important as we go along. They failed to cast out a demon out of a young man, and Jesus then has to intervene and clean up the mess. And Jesus and his disciples, they leave for Capernaum, and on the way... He begins to teach them once again for the second time very clearly that he must suffer and die and be resurrected. His words are as clear as day, right? But again, this plain truth is going to go right over their heads. They're not going to understand. And, and this time, they don't even bother to talk about it. They just say, we'll just kind of ignore that, you know, what he's saying. And instead of contemplating what Jesus had said, they instead begin to argue. And what do they argue about? They argue about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the, in the new kingdom, Right? Who's going to be the most important person in Israel next to Jesus when, when Jesus becomes the king? That's what they're arguing about. And when they finally get to Capernaum, Jesus then asks them, what are you arguing about? And they know they're being selfish here. And they don't say anything because they're, they're too embarrassed to talk about it. But then Jesus calls them out and he says to them, those who will be the greatest will be the last and the servants of all. And the least important person in the world has great value in the kingdom of heaven. And, and those who follow Jesus are to love and value those who have no value. And Jesus, once again, overturns their understanding of their role and their purpose in the new kingdom. And, and Jesus is telling them very clearly, it's not about you. It's about Jesus and everyone else. And in that Context in that same conversation, right after Jesus makes his point, the Apostle John kind of butts in and says, Teacher, we saw someone cast out demons in, in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> now, this is a pretty straightforward sentence, and it would be really easy for us to read this and just kind of move through the rest of the story. Because, I mean, let's just be honest. This little section here is very small. And the next part that we're going to tackle next week is where it gets kind of scary because Jesus is going to be very firm about temptation and sin. And he's going to affirm for us you know, the doctrine of hell. Right? He's going to make it clear that there is a hell exists and, and those people who don't follow him are in trouble. Right? So it's really easy to kind of like skip and skip over this part and miss this. Right? But because, you know, Jesus, you know, I mean, they saw somebody casting out a demon by the authority of, of your name, Lord, right? And we tried to stop him, right, because he's not following us. And we could have just moved right on. But, but please understand, there is a lot to unpack here. Because what we're going to see here in John's attitude is his heart still is in the right place. And what we're going to see is oftentimes some reflections of our own heart as what it means to, to serve and follow Christ. You see, the first thing to notice is John speaks up here and he says the word we. We saw someone. It's actually pretty unusual because the New Testament doesn't have a lot to say about John speaking for the most part. Usually it doesn't refer to John by himself. It usually is John and Peter and James. But, so John is being singled out here and he says we. 
And the reason why he's saying we is because he has made it a point to speak up for the rest of the apostles. He's taken upon himself to speak up for the group because he probably thinks to himself, I'm a leader. Remember, what were they arguing about just before this? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we're going to see in a few weeks, uh, John and James are going to come to Jesus and say, by the way, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, which one of us can be uh, in, you know, on your right and left hand? Make us the two most important people in your kingdom. Okay? So he sees himself kind of as a leader here. And why wouldn't he, right? He's one of the three that Jesus took up on the mountain to pray by themselves, Peter, James, and John. And while they were up there, they saw Jesus transfigured, right? And they saw Moses and Elijah, and they heard the voice of God himself, Peter, James, and John. And then as they came down the mountain, Jesus right, swore them to secrecy. He was one of those three, right? So he must be feeling like the inner circle, not to mention he was there. Like everybody else stayed outside when they, when they went inside to the house, and they, 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 they raised the little girl to life. He only took with them who? Peter, James, and John. So, man... Let's just be honest. He must be feeling like he is somebody special by this point. Right? So despite that Jesus has just said true greatness in the kingdom is, is the first being last and being a servant of all, John demonstrates he still doesn't understand, right? because he still thinks he's super special. John still has a high view of himself. And so he takes it upon himself to speak for the entire group, and says, we. Secondly, it says, I want you to notice, it says, we saw someone casting out demons. Notice the label that he applies to this, to this person. It's a someone. It doesn't say his name. He doesn't identify this person who he specifically is. He doesn't, he doesn't even say, this guy's been a new follower, an old follower, somebody that's been hanging around. He doesn't identify this person by the town that they're from. He doesn't, he doesn't say whether you know, he's a Jew or not, which more likely he is. He, did, he just says someone. Some nameless, faceless someone. Now what you have to understand is if John and the apostles went out to confront someone doing something like performing miracles, like casting out demons, the chances are the conversation would be a little bit more than, hey, you there, stop that. Chances are they're probably like, hey, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you get this power? Why do you think that you can do this? How are you, did Jesus specially commission you for this? I mean, is there something that we're missing? So, so the odds are pretty good that they at least, at the very least, had learned this man's name and where he came from. But John doesn't make a point at all to mention In fact, he makes a point not to mention it. He says, someone. And this is important because when he says someone, what he means is someone who's not us. Not one of the in crowd. Not one of us 12. Because we're somebody. This guy's a nobody. You see, the 12 apostles had it in their mind that they were something very special in the kingdom of God. As we've seen, right, they believed that they were more special than everyone else. Remember, right? they thought that they were going to be the VIPs in the kingdom of heaven. They, they, they saw themselves as Jesus' closest advisors. They were going to be powerful, influential people when Jesus 
ascended to the throne of David. They were the chosen ones. That's why they were arguing. Remember, why they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Because it was all about them. But Jesus tells them that greatness is, is putting everyone else first and valuing everyone else first and serving everyone else first. But this message is obviously not sinking into John because John, like the other apostles, probably thinks that casting out demons was supposed to be reserved for them. It was, it was their job. They were the ones that were specially commissioned by Christ. They were the ones right, that, that Christ took everywhere they were the ones that Jesus separated from the crowd and spoke to them separately. They were the ones that Jesus called apostles and gave them a label. They were the ones that he empowered with authority to heal and cast out demons and sent them on a special short-term missions trip. So this was their duty, because they were special. But then here's this nobody. This nameless, faceless someone in the crowd who isn't even one of them, and he comes along, and he's casting out demons just like they were. And this is probably, at this point in the story, sitting kind of sideways with John and the apostles, because remember, they had just recently failed at this very thing. Right? You remember? They had failed. Casting out demons is something they had done many, many times. Right? But this last time, because of their pride and self-sufficiency, they'd failed. Because they began to think that, by the, that, the, that the power that God had given them to cast out demons belonged to them. And so they were not depending on, on him. They were depending on their own ability instead of God. And as a result, they were unable to cast out the demon of this young man, which, which was probably really embarrassing and humiliating because who else was there? Pharisees. And the Pharisees were probably making fun of them and talking trash to them. And Jesus then has to come along, right, and clean up the mess and, and rescue them. But then, here's this nobody. This person that really didn't even like register on their radar. This nameless, faceless person who isn't one of them. He's casting out demons with the authority of Christ, something that they failed to do. He's using the name of Jesus to perform a miracle that they failed at. Brothers and sisters, it probably was really bothering them. In fact... They had a huge attitude problem with it. Because I want you to notice what he says next. He says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And the issue here is subtle, but it's there. He said, he's not following us. Us. You see that? He's, he didn't say, he's not following you, Jesus. He's not following us, because they should be following us, not just you, us, because we're kind of co-equals now, right? This phrase right here reveals a fundamental issue in the disciples' heart. They are forgetting that their mission in following Jesus is about Christ and not them, right? It's about Jesus and why he came in his glory. It's not about their glory. It is not about their fame. It is not about their importance in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about their position. It's not about them at all. It's all about Jesus. And they've lost sight of that. Which, by the way, is a very real issue that we still face today. The reality is we, as a church, we as individuals can make church and ministry and serving about 
us, even the most loving and sincere and compassionate and, and, and committed of us. In fact, one of the most difficult things about pastoring a church I have learned in the last seven years is people in ministry, even those who are faithful and, and who have a servant's heart and who, who get their, you know, who, who really like try to prioritize God first in their lives, oftentimes they can get their feelings hurt really, really, really easy. They can become offended and get their feelings hurt super easy, even the most well-meaning of people who serve in the church. And the reason is, it's really simple. The reason is, on some level, serving God ends up, at least a little bit, ends up being about them. It ends up being about them. Maybe not a lot, but a little bit. Like, just like the apostles. And that's why they get their feelings hurt, right? And it makes it hard because sometimes leading a church and trying to be faithful to shepherd a congregation and do what I believe that God is calling me to do requires at times I make decisions. Sometimes those decisions aren't liked by every single person. And, and, and sometimes, you know, what God's calling me to do requires that I say no to some people. And it requires that I, that I reject some people's ideas saying, that's just not what we're doing. Sometimes I feel led to change something about, you know, or, or how we do something, right, that others have been invested in for a long time. And, you know, and sometimes I have to make a decision because God is leading me to change something that maybe we have done for a very long time. Sometimes, you know, we do away with things as a church and ministry, you know, simply because it's time to change them, but some people just still really, really, really like them. And sometimes we have to speak you know, and ask people to change their capacity to serve. And, and sometimes we have to, to ask people to change the method in which they serve. And sometimes we, sometimes we just have to say no. We, we can't do that. Or no, that's just not what we're going to do right now. That's not the season for that. And oftentimes, these things cause hurt feelings. No matter how, 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 how loving I try to be. No matter how clear I try to be no matter what the approach I take, no matter how much I, I don't want to hurt a person's feelings. I want you guys to know I love you all, right? And the idea of me hurting one of somebody's feelings really bothers me. I don't want to do that. Right? But sometimes, despite my best efforts, people get their feelings hurt. And the reason for that is, is actually on some level, it's not them. Right? And that's why they take it so personally. That's why they struggle to take sincere, constructive criticism. I mean, I'm going to tell you, like, like one, of the things I've, one of the best things I ever did was is when we, when we developed a worship team, you know, Johnny made it to the point where like, we, we have people that come and they, they serve in the worship team without actually being up on stage for a while and we get to know them and get to see them. And one of the things I remind people say is you can only even audition for the worship team if you can hear the word no and not get your feelings hurt. Right? Because, you know what, I don't want to be American Idol, right? Where somebody's up there singing their heart out and go, that's just not going to work. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, and, and the reality is I want to be able to be, be honest. I want to tell people the truth. I want to be constructive and say, um, I'm sorry, you're just not a good fit. Right? I'm sorry, but you know, this is not where God's gifted you. This is not the area, right? 
Sometimes people struggle to take sincere, constructive criticism, and they react emotionally in some level, right? It's because their service ends up being about them. And, and, and believe me, that's what we see here. What we need to realize that this is a natural phenomenon in the church, right? Because the, if the apostles wrestled with this, brothers and sisters were wrestling with it too. Let's just, let's just be real. The reason why John is bringing this up is because it bothers him. Like he interrupted Jesus trying to make a point about, about their view of the kingdom, right? It's bothering him because, because following Christ and serving as an apostle was about him. And now we know for a fact that John was a sincere believer in Christ. He loved the Lord, right? In fact, John was the man that Jesus said, take care of my mama. Like, I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the most important people in your life when you say, take care of my mom, Right? So we, we, we know for a fact that, that he was sincere. But like so many who serve, let's just be honest for a moment, it was about him in this moment. He still had not understood that greatness in, in the kingdom is what, what Jesus was saying. And notice what else John says. He says, we tried to stop him. <laughs> Think about this, all right? They're telling Jesus, hey, there's this guy casting out demons in your name which is the equivalent of, hey, there's somebody out there setting people free from demonic, oppressive possession. But because he isn't one of us, high-ranking officials in the kingdom, we tried to stop him. And in fact, we, we thought it was so important that we tried to stop him without even asking you and talking to you about it first. We didn't ask you if we could. We didn't even ask you if we should. Right? We just made the decision, right? because, I mean, really, he's not one of us, so... And remember, this is the same conversation where Jesus just said, if you're going to be first, you need to be last and be the servant of everyone else. And you need to value the least valuable. This is the same exact conversation that John brings this up. Can you see how John the Apostles, how his heart was still hardened to this issue? How he and the other Apostles are still partially blind. Right? They think it's about them. But then notice how Jesus responds. And it's actually beautiful. Jesus said, do not stop him. Now the words do not stop him are four words. Right? But you have to realize, is the impact of those words were probably the equivalent of Jesus slapping him in the face. Because this is not at all what he is expecting for Jesus to say. You realize that. Like He brought this up because he thought that Jesus was going to respond differently. He was expecting Jesus to agree with him. And he was expecting Jesus to say, show me who he is. I'll go out there and stop him myself. Right? You're right to stop him. Because we can't have people running around you know, using my name to do good things, casting out demons unless they have some title and some special commission. I mean, like, what happens to quality control when that happens, right? That's kind of what he expected. But that's not what Jesus said. He says, don't stop him. Let him keep doing what he's doing. And then he says, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, there's a whole lot of commentary about exactly what Jesus is getting at and saying here. But ultimately, there's really only two things that you need to understand from this text for our purposes today. And that is, number one, this man who did this may not be a follower of the disciples, but he make no mistake, was a follower of Christ. He was a believer. Otherwise, he's not able to do this. Number two, he was casting out demons 
by the will and the power of God himself. This is the truth that the disciples fail to understand. The ability to cast out demons or any other miracle can only be done by the power of God. And this is something that they should remember. This should be fresh in their minds because they couldn't do it. They failed. And they lost sight of the truth. No human being exercising his own power can do anything supernatural. You realize that, right? There's not a human being on the face of the earth that can do anything supernatural without the power of God. No human being is going to ever cast out a demon without the power of God. No human being is ever going to heal somebody without the power of God. No human being is he going to even bring another human being to salvation without the power of God. Because all of these things can only be done by his power. And no exercise of power of God, no exercise of power of God is done without his will and his consent. So this man casting out demons was doing so because he believed in Christ and God himself empowered him to do this. Otherwise he couldn't do it. You realize that. Any other view of God makes God a genie in the bottle. If you can wield God's power without his permission and his express will, then he's nothing more than a genie in a bottle. You just have to find the right formula. But John the Apostles, in their pride and jealousy, could not understand that this man was a believer and was doing this by the power of God. And Jesus then says to them, for the one who is not against us is for us. He's saying, don't stop him. He's on the same side as us. He's trying to achieve the same mission. We are on the same team. Don't stop him. Now this right here is particularly important for us today because sometimes as Christians, we can really become overly critical of other believers and have this tendency to eat our own. There's this tendency to want to divide ourselves into kind of exclusive little groups. And, And sometimes we don't even fellowship with other believers because... Because they're not exactly like us. For instance, how many of you were here for Dr. Reichman's presentation last Sunday night? Okay. How many of you enjoyed that? All right, same here. Right? I want you to know, I, like, I enjoyed it. I was grateful for his testimony. I was edified by the message. And as a brother in Christ, I was strengthened and encouraged by his sermon. But what you need to understand is that Dr. Reichman and I have some areas of theology where we don't even see close to eye to eye. There are some theological differences between us that are very, very large. There are some secondary and third order issues that he believes I just simply don't believe. And I was very clear with him up front about it. I told him, I just don't believe that. I told him, I'm not a landmark Baptist, right? I don't believe that history proves that a Baptist church existed all the way back to John the Baptist. I mean, you just can't make that case in history. A lot of independent fundamentalist Baptists like to say that and hold on to that, but you can't do it. You can't read a history book by anybody that proves that. It's just not there. It's not in historical record. And I told him that. I believe that, 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 that Baptist as a denomination was born out of the Reformation because I can prove that historically. And I told him, I don't hold to the same exact end times view that he does. There's some things he believes. I'm just like, I'm not there with you. Right? And I told him that I'm a Reformed Baptist, which means I value and identify with a Baptist heritage that goes all the way back to the 16th and 17th centuries. Right? And, and that there are just some things that I hold to very firmly that he's just not on board with. And, and, and both of us were very, very clear about those things. But you notice, I invited him to come. 
And he accepted. You know why? Because we're brothers in Christ. We share an orthodox core to our faith. On the essential things, we are in complete agreement. I believe that he is a sincere believer who adheres to the foundational truths of the gospel. That he, that, 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 like the Trinity and the divinity of Christ and the inerrancy of scriptures and the virgin birth and salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He and I are completely united in lockstep on what makes a Christian a Christian. And as such, I embrace him as my brother, and I'm praying for his ministry as he, as he works through the same thing I'm doing, to share the hope of Jesus Christ so that people are saved. Now, are there differences between us that are, that are, that are, that are important? <laughs> yes, there are some really important differences. And I'm very passionate about Christ and the theology I've grown to come to understand. I'm passionate about having a high view of Scripture and a high view of God, and those things have led me to, to believe the things that I believe theologically. And, and he and I can even argue about those things, and, and he and I actually did a little bit. right? But at the core, he and I are united in, in lockstep over the essentials of our, our faith. And that's why I had him come speak, and I'll have him come again. And this right here is something that we all need to keep in mind and practice. We are to love and to value and to support other true believers in Christ, regardless of the church they may attend and what denomination they might identify themselves with. Because in truth, we are one body. We're all on the same side. And not only are we on the same side, but we're the same family. What does that mean then? Does it mean that we can't be discerning? Huh. On the contrary, no. Right? We must be discerning. We must have these conversations. We must be able to talk about these things. We must make sure that the people that we're, we're loving and dealing with are of orthodox faith. Right? Because there's some theological differences that are too huge and important to not address. There's some things right, that some people will pass themselves off for believers that, that where they're really just simply not. If you're a person who, who claims to follow Christ, but you deny the triune nature of God, you're just simply not a believer. I don't care how sincere your faith is. If you don't see God as a triune God, you're not a believer. If you say you're somebody who trusts in Christ, but you say that, that God himself was once a man like we are, then you don't know who God is. And that means you have not met him, and you don't know him, and he's not changed your life. You're not a believer. I'm sorry. And if someone says that Jesus came here to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy, I can assure you, we're not on the same side. Because Jesus came to die and set us free. We must recognize who it is who is for us and who is against us. And so we should be discerning. But the disciples, they weren't discerning at all. All they could see is their position in the kingdom. That was it. They couldn't see that this man was actually a believer, supernaturally empowered by God, and they failed to embrace him as a fellow laborer of the kingdom. And then Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now in English, this, this is a, um, a strange expression. Um, and, and I've heard people use this actually in a really odd way. They say, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, offer him a drink of water because of that scripture. Somehow you're proving to the Jehovah's Witness that you're, you know, you're not their, their enemy and they can't say you're persecuting him. And I'm like... I don't know if that's what that means. Well, the meaning here is actually quite simple. Right? When you look, I know, it's, it's, I've heard it multiple times. That's the only reason why I bring it up. So 
But, but the thing is, is when we read this in English, what we, it's hard to see is Jesus is actually coming back to make the same point. Right? He's making the same point that he was making before John interrupted him. And that those who are great in the kingdom are going to be servants of others. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. If you want to, want to be great, you need to serve. Greatness is not about position. It's not about your title. It's not about your name. It's not about your status. It's about serving other people. And, and Jesus then goes further and says that those who serve, even in the most insignificant capacity, will be rewarded. That's what he's saying here. Even if, if they're not like us, even if they don't have a fancy title like an apostle, even when nobody knows their name, their service is still important and known by God because God knows their name. And they're going to be rewarded. Because no, hear me, no act of service in the name of Christ is insignificant in the kingdom of heaven. And no one who serves Christ is insignificant in the kingdom of heaven. No one. Even if the rest of the world doesn't know your name. So what does all that mean for us then? Well, I think that now a year in, as we've seen these pieces kind of come to place, I think we just need to just accept it. We just need to accept it that all of us are called to ministry. If, 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 if you don't remember anything else I say, and you walk out these doors, remember these words, I've been called to ministry. Right? Every single one of you has been called to ministry in some capacity. Even if you feel like you're not someone who has anything really to contribute, even if you don't think you have an important position, even if you don't feel like you're particularly skilled or well-known, if you follow Christ, you are called to serve Christ in some capacity or form, which means we're all equipped for ministry. Every single one of us are equipped for ministry. God has supernaturally equipped us to serve in some capacity. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, you'd be casting out demons, by the way. I don't think people are doing that a whole lot right now. And, and, and you might not be called to preach on Sunday morning, and you might not be called to sing you know, on the worship team. Though sometimes people need to go to American Idol. But God has equipped you Supernaturally in some fashion. Maybe he equipped you to show compassion to the hurting. If there's a ministry that the world needs, that's a big one. Maybe he's equipped you to use your hands and, 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 and to clean up or maintain church property or, or maybe just to go to somebody else's house and help them out. Maybe he's equipped you to, to be an encouragement to other people because, again, if there's something we need is encouragement. Maybe he's equipped you to teach. Maybe he's equipped you to counsel others. Again, if there's something else that we need is godly counsel. And there are dozens and dozens of ways to serve, and God has equipped you to do so. And whatever it is he's equipped you to do, it's important, even if you feel it's insignificant, because all service in the kingdom is valuable. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. In fact, I want you to understand, the reason why Jesus uses this analogy of a glass of water is in that culture that's essentially the least thing that you can do for a person is to give them a glass of water. That's like the bare minimum of, of hospitality. Right? It's like, like, like that's the, the tiniest bit of hospitality you can offer someone and even remotely be considered possibly slightly hospitable. Giving someone a glass of water culturally was not a big deal. And what Jesus is saying is anything you do, even as insignificant as that, in service to God, no matter how insignificant it may seem to you, is valuable. Please hear me. Whatever you do in the name of the Lord in service to others is valuable. 
mopping floors, changing diapers, teaching in class, counseling, fixing sprinklers, making, you know, making food for, for families that, who have lost a loved one, sending little notes of encouragement, calling and checking up on people just to say, hey, I'm thinking about you and I love you. It all matters, every bit of it. Because serving others is greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And serving others is radically different than the rest of the world. And Jesus makes it clear, God rewards those who serve. Now, we can talk all day about what, what, is, what will those rewards look like. And you might ask me, and you know what I'm going to tell you? Oh, no. Because the Bible, you can read the Bible yourself. It's not, the Bible doesn't say, hey, guess what? First prize is this, okay? Right? It has some hints and allusions to things like crowns and stuff, but, but ultimately what we know is God's going to reward people in heaven. And what we need to know is it's going to be good because God is good. Right? So thus endeth that lesson, right? But what we need to understand, now that we understand this text, is, and now we understand what it means for us, let's talk about what we do with this. And I believe what the first thing we need to do is, is really the first thing we need to do in all things is we need to seek God's will. What is it that God's will for our life is? Right? Now, I know that, that, that it's God's will for you to serve. So don't tell me it ain't God's will for you to serve because I know it is. You know how I know? Because the Bible says so. Paul says in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, one of our favorite verses, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one may boast. And then he tells you the reason why. He said, for, because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which Christ prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already prepared good works for you to do. He has already prepared a way for you to serve. He's already equipped you to do so. And so it's important what you do is you seek his will. You go to him in prayer and say, Lord, Show me what I'm supposed to do. Confirm for me what I'm supposed to do. Right? Go and spend alone time with him and help him and have him open your eyes. He will certainly lead you. And believe me, if you try something that's on his will, he will close the door. If he does something if you try to do something that's not in, in his will, he will close the door. So what you need to do is go, Lord, let your will be done. Secondly, we need to depend upon his grace. Now, the second thing, if you forget everything else, then, then remember this one. Depend on his grace. Because you need it. Right? You, you couldn't even come to faith without it. Right? It's by his grace you've been saved. And once you realize I've been saved by grace, you get there and you go, I need more. Right? I need, it's a good thing it's a limited, unlimited, unlimited supply of grace. Because we need it. Right? Because remember, we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Remember the apostles struggling to, to grow and they're standing with Jesus himself. Remember, we cannot do the things that he's calling us to do without him. We need his power. We need his strength. We need his guidance. We need his love. We need his patience and his wisdom. And sometimes we're going to slip up. And we're going to slip in and make serving about us. By the way, I want you to know when I say us, I don't mean just like y'all. I'm talking about us. Okay? Sometimes we can make it about ourselves, right? Sometimes we can become hardened to suggestions and, and criticism, and we can be hardened to leaders around us saying, right, no to us, thinking to ourselves that we know better than them. What does that pastor think he... Who does he think he is telling me I can't do that? Right? 
Who does she think she is that telling me I need to be here on time? It's only by God's grace can we serve. It's only by his grace that we continue to do so. And finally, we need to serve with all our heart. As Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Remember, right? Remember, every act of service you give to another, no matter how small, is an act of service given to God himself. That's what Jesus said. So then, so what we're supposed to do, seek his will, depend on his grace, and then serve God with all of our heart. And remember, greatness in the kingdom is following Jesus, is dependent, is, is, is denying ourselves in favor of Christ. It's selflessly valuing other people and putting them first. It's sacrificially paying whatever price is required to follow Jesus and then being wholly and totally dependent upon God in service to him and others with all humility, giving God the glory, knowing full well that one day he will reward even the smallest act of service. Paul in Christ is about living that out. And, and the only way that you can live that out, church, hear me. The only way that you can live that out is for God to transform your heart. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.